0: Well, Jeffrey Curry is back at it, calling commodities extremely bullish. Good news for the listeners of the Northern Miner Podcast and all associated people in the mining industry. Maybe not so good news for everybody else, but uh, we got to take the winds where we can here. Bonds continue to move higher, 1.75%. So maybe the bond market is finally confirming a bit of inflation. Once again, everybody waiting on the Fed. You know, the Fed is just at the center of it all here. I mean, we're a mining podcast and it's kind of ridiculous how much we are following the Federal Reserve, but it's almost like it's a metaphor for the entire economy. And and maybe that's fair enough. Maybe it's not ridiculous. I mean, if they're setting interest rates... I guess it stands to reason that everybody is waiting on what they're gonna say next, but it sure is centralized, that's for sure. I'm not sure this is what the American founders had in mind. To editorialize a bit there, we have a wonderful show coming up with Stephen Stewart from Orefinders, and it is a a wide-ranging survey of the mining industry in Canada and even internationally. I want to get Steven on just because uh, he's got, with his ore finders groups, he's got six companies, six explorers that he works with. And he's also the chairman of the Young Mining Professionals. So this isn't just someone who is trying to get ahead, so to speak. He is trying to give back. And so I thought, you know, this is a great person to have on. And it was a very, very interesting conversation. It went over about 15 minutes. So... Normally, I do a 20, 25-minute discussion. This is hovering on 40, so there's a lot to sink your teeth into here. Other than that, we are waiting on the next Global Mining Symposium, which is happening on February 23rd and 24th. Registration is now open. Just go to events.northernminer.com. The year is kicking off, thankfully, without too much of a bang. I mean, I remember in 2020, it sure started off with a bang, uh, and that's kind of a relief. I mean, it's more just, uh, frankly, everybody seems kind of waiting on the Fed to see which direction uh, and where to position themselves here. Honestly, if like for me personally, I, I have my investments I like, and I just kind of stick with them for better or worse. Yeah, if we take a look at the gold price, we're back above $1,800 at $1,806, Copper at $4.38 per pound. So, you know, everything's just kind of waiting, hovering. And the uh, U.S. stock market kind of had a bit of a hit yesterday, Uh, but nothing, frankly, all that special. I mean, down 0.14%. NASDAQ made a comeback. I think it looked a little uglier earlier in the day, but it kind of came back on track. You know, we have the same old geopolitical worries as ever with Russia and China, so You know, it reminds me of that time, maybe six months to a year ago, where I felt like, I think it was in September, where it felt like the market was waiting for a catalyst. And it kind of feels that way once again. It's like a a news cycle in search of a story. But, you know, interesting stuff from Jeffrey Curry. So we're going to get into that right away. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern and on Instagram at The Northern and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube where we also host these podcasts, and wherever podcasts are available, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And now let's turn to our CEO spotlight with QuestX Gold and Copper Exploration CEO, Joseph Mullen. Joining me today, I'm very happy to welcome Joseph Mullen, CEO of QuestX Gold and Copper Exploration based in Canada. And Joseph, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Adrian. It's a pleasure to have you, and it's always great to hear from our local miners. So tell me, so you have properties in the Golden Triangle. Tell us, what are you up to at Quest X Gold and Copper Exploration?
1: We have a very
0: large property package for a company of our size.
1: We have over 130,000 hectares of mineral tenure claims. In Northern BC. As you said, most of those are in the area that's known as the Golden Triangle. Among those properties, we have two clusters of properties. One is to the north, where we have the Castle property, which is adjoining uh, Newmont, and we have the North Rock Coyote property adjoining Newcrest. And then to the south, we have our KSP property and our Kingpin property. And the KSP property was the focus of our drill program this past season. It's where we are aiming to put out a maiden resource estimate this spring. Um, We're aiming to put that out in in April. And it's also where we're planning to do additional exploration later this summer as well. So the KSP property is really the the focus of our company and our our exploration program
0: right now. Okay, excellent. So let's take a, a deeper look then at KSP. So is this also a gold and copper project? It is.
1: So it's a very large property. It's about over 30,000 hectares. On that property, our focus this past season was the, the Inel showing where we did drilling to advance a, a resource. Uh, in the case of uh, our exploration program this coming season, we'll be focused on uh, probably Sarasite Ridge and Black Bluffs. And those are two copper gold porphyry targets. As opposed to the Inel, which is more of a high-grade vein system target.
0: So it is both copper and gold. And what's yes. the ratio on that? In a sense, like in your mind, is it kind of more of a copper play or more more of a gold play, or just simply both? Um, definitely, in the case of Inel, it's more of a gold
1: play, and that has really been our, our focus last season. It's far too early to say what the what the porphyries would would look like if we. Did indeed uh, have success in in finding something there, so it's it's still early days on that. So for now, really the focus is is the gold, um, and it's it's more of a gold focused.
0: Okay, excellent. So this is in the Golden Triangle, which is you know as long as I've worked at the Northern Miner, it has been one of the major sort of districts we might say in Canada. How did you end up there, and, and how do you find working there? Like, uh, I guess there's a lot of people around you. Uh, tell us a bit about just the Golden Triangle. Yeah, so
1: there's there's been a, a lot of activity there in the past several years. You had a whole period in the 1980s where you had a, a bunch of exciting discoveries, like the Stip Mine, the SK Creek Mine. Um, those were typically you know, high-grade gold mines that were put into production. What then happened is about 20 years ago, you started to see the province of BC put a number of important infrastructure projects into, into place, like a, a highway, additional roads, power lines. Um, you also have some hydroelectric facilities that were built. So that made things like you know, open pit mines more uh, well feasible in a way that they hadn't been before. So you saw this kind of new push in terms of you know, larger infrastructure related to, to open pit mines. So right now in, uh, in the Golden Triangle, you have two mines that are in production. You have the Red Chris mine that is uh, 70% owned by Newcrest, which is near the village of Isket. And then to the south, you have the Predium Bruce Jack Mine, which Newcrest just announced that it was um, acquiring in November. So those are two very large mines that are in production. Then you have some uh, past producing mines that are going back into production. Skeena's Eskay Creek is you know, the best example of, of that. You also have the SNP Gold Project, which is both jointly controlled by, by Hosschild and Skeena. Newmont has also made important investments in the region with their purchase of 50% of Bloor Creek and their purchase of GT Gold's uh, Totoga property. So you have a lot of activity and a lot of new investment on the part of majors just
0: in the last four years. I tell you, it's one of like Canada in general is seeing a lot of activity. We see all these Australian companies coming into Canada, I've noticed just recently. So KSP is your main project, it sounds like, for right now, or at least your focus. So what's your roadmap at KSP then?
1: Well, we're, uh, we've been working over the summer and even uh, before in the spring on uh, our maiden resource estimate for, for the INEL showing at KSP. The drilling that we did this past summer at KSP was focused on INEL. All of the drilling was, was on INEL. We also did additional IP work on other targets on the KSP property besides INEL. Um, so that IP work was focused mainly on Sarasite Ridge. We also did an IP line at, at uh, Black Bluff. So, in terms of our thoughts, in terms of the drill campaign this coming summer, uh, we would uh, test the copper-gold porphyry targets at uh, at Sarasite Ridge and and maybe even Black Bluff as well. But in terms of you know, in terms of the roadmap, the next step in that roadmap is the resource estimate at INEL, and then you know, building upon that towards, um, you know, towards the next step.
0: Okay, very exciting. And before you go, tell us about your other projects. Are there some that are also in the Golden Triangle?
1: Yeah, so the the properties to the north of KSV that we have, we have properties around the Red Chris Mine. We have the North Rock Coyote property, which is directly north of, of Red Chris We also have the Castle property, which is to the West of Newmont's recently acquired Totoga property, um, we think those properties could be of strategic value to one or more of our neighbors, and um, we think there's uh, there's value in that land package as well. There's exploration potential, also the potential for infrastructure and um, uh, and you know other uh, other uses as well.
0: Okay, excellent. And in closing, what message do you have for potential investors? Uh, what's your sort of elevator pitch on this project?
1: You know, I think that um, there's a lot of excitement around our putting out a resource at, at INEL. I'm very excited about continued exploration potential on, on KSP. We also have a very attractive land package, and we have probably the third largest land package in the Golden Triangle after Seabridge and, and Credium. So with a $30 million market cap right now, um, we're very, very attractively priced relative to uh, the size of our land package and its strategic uh,
0: location. Okay, excellent. Well, I'd like to thank you, Joseph Mullen, CEO of QuestX Gold and Copper Exploration for joining us today. And if people want to find you online, I guess they can go to questx.ca And it looks like here you're on the TSX Venture at QEX. Are you also on any other exchanges? We're also on the
1: OTC under QEXGF. So that's our our US
0: listing as well. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you once again, Joseph. And we look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thank you very much, Adrian. And thank you to QuestX Gold and Copper Exploration for sponsoring this week's podcast. And turning to the website, let's take a look at this Jeffrey Curry Goldman Sachs supercycle story. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Goldman bullish on commodities, seen years-long supercycle. So Jeffrey Curry said this about a year ago, called for a supercycle. So he is holding strong to the call. And it says here Goldman Sachs Group is, quote, extremely bullish on commodities amid a super cycle that has the potential to last for a decade, according to Jeff Curry, the bank's global head of commodities research. The new year has started against a backdrop that includes record dislocations in energy Metals and agriculture, and significant amounts of money in the system, Curry said in a Bloomberg television interview. In addition, investment positions in commodities are low, he added. Quote, the best place to be right now, particularly given the Fed pivot, are commodities, end quote, Curry said, referring to the U.S. Federal Reserve's decision to begin hiking interest rates later this year. Quote, we think you're going to see another year of outperformance of commodities and real assets more broadly. Goldman stated in October 2020 that commodities were beginning a super cycle that that could last years and possibly a decade. The oil market in particular could tighten, even with OPEC plus Alliance incrementally adding supplies to the market as the pandemic continues to threaten demand and investment. The only two countries in the world that can produce more oil today than they could in January 2020 are Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, Curry said. Quote, every other country in the world struggles, end quote, to hit its pre-pandemic levels. Goldman Sachs' target price for Brent crude in the first quarter is $85 a barrel. But that was under the assumption that Iranian production would return later in the year, which is looking increasingly unlikely, he added. The global benchmark is currently trading at around $81 a barrel. Quote, this market has the potential to get very tight over the course of the next three to six months. That is what I'm hearing oil is about to get tight. And we look at the latest numbers, and yes, it's at $79.33, up a percent and a half yesterday. And turning to Kazakhstan, which is one of the big suppliers of the uranium market, and we have a story here by Henry Lazenby that says, Kazakh uranium industry unaffected by unrest. So it sounds like all the turmoil that's going on in Kazakhstan is not affecting uranium production. It has affected uh, Bitcoin mining, interestingly, when they turned off the Internet. But uranium still it remains unaffected. So taking a look here, the world's largest uranium producer, Kazetomprom, remains unaffected by the ongoing turmoil in the Central Asian state of Kazakhstan. Reuters reported the Kazakh producer as saying... Quote, Uranium mining is going according to plan. There have been no stoppages. A spokesperson said the company is fulfilling its export contracts. Uranium prices have spiked to $45.50 per pound, the highest since November 30th. As protests and security crackdowns spread across the country, the widespread protests initially started in the oil-rich west of the country in response to rising prices of liquefied petroleum gas, LPG, which many Kazakhs use to power their cars. The protests have now grown to include critics of Kazakhstan's long autocratic rule. Kazakhstan has a history of social upheaval. Nursultan Nazarbayev ruled a former Soviet state, Kazakhstan, from 1991 until 2019. Nazarbayev ally Kazim Yomart Tokayev was elected president in a vote condemned by observers as unfree in 2019. Nazarbayev remained in government in a national security position. And to subdue the protests, Tokayev dismissed his cabinet and it says around a thousand have been injured so far in the protests while, quote, dozens of anti-government protesters have been killed in Kazakhstan's largest city, Almaty. The continued unrest on January 6th prompted a sell-off of uranium stocks quoted in Toronto, halting uranium equities rallying up until Wednesday. Now, you would think if there was unrest in a major uranium producer that there wouldn't be a sell-off of every other uranium stock, so not sure if it's related to that. Canadian uranium producers such as Cameco, Denizen Mines, and NextGen Energy retreated from their gains, each falling between 5% to 7% in early morning trading on Thursday. And finally, Kazakhstan's uranium accounts for about 40% of global uranium production Kazatomprom's attributable production represents about 23% of global primary uranium output in 2020. And we have a quote from CRU Group's EMEA consultant Taktar Turbay, who said that there might be some logistical hurdles with delivering products to the borders since significant routes pass through the Almaty region where all the significant clashes are ongoing, and that it could cause some, quote, logical discomfort rather than anything else. And we have another quote, more than half of Kazakh's uranium exports goes to China. It is just likely to create minor discomfort rather than anything else end quote. And he continues, in the last decade, China has accumulated vast uranium inventories that can cover 11 to 12 years of uranium demand needs. Any short-term disruptions will leave enough uranium in the inventories to cover the immediate needs of the market. So I wonder if the West is stockpiling 11 to 12 years of uranium needs. That is quite something. You know, and, and if they're not, if the West isn't, I, I wonder, say, what the U.S. is stockpiling. If it's not 11 to 12 years, is it six months? Is it a year? Is it two weeks? Interesting question. And we have a few m as here. Corvus agrees to a $370 million takeover by Anglo Gold Ashanti, Osino Resources to acquire B2 Gold's Undundu property in Namibia, and Hexagon... EB expands Mind solutions portfolio with Minovari acquisition. So it's almost like people are starting to position themselves for what Jeffrey Curry is talking about, which is higher commodity prices. And maybe people don't want to wait for things to get out of hand before making their move. If we were to step back and look at what might be going on strategically here. Also in Brazil... This is an interesting story. Vale has halted its rail operations and production in Brazil after heavy rainfall. This is by Northern Miner staff. And it's possible this move is to temporarily suspend operations. It says here, is likely influenced by concerns about the safety of its various facilities in Minas Gerais in the aftermath of the deadly tailings dam collapse at its Correio de Fejajo iron ore mine located near the city of Brumandinho. The dam's collapse on January 25, 2019 was the deadliest in Brazilian mining history, releasing some 12 million cubic meters of tailings and killing at least 259 people. So, Valet playing it safe, wisely, in Brazil on the heavy rainfall. And finally, Peru is reporting a 60% increase in mining tax revenues by Valentina Ruiz Leotode. And according to the Peruvian Ministry of Energy and Mines, or MINEM, the growth in royalties was due to higher metal prices and increased production, which boosted companies' profits and subsequently their royalty payments. And it also says that 22% of the mining tax revenues were destined to the northern Ancash region, where Peru's largest copper mine, the Antamina copper-zinc mine, is located. Arequipa in the southwestern part of the country was next having received 21.8% of the funds while Tacna occupied the third spot garnering 9.5% of the funds. You know they just got the new government there in Chile didn't say here if taxes had gone up in the last year so that's kind of an interesting question because if taxes hadn't gone up maybe the governments just might not want to touch anything but if they had gone up well maybe they do want to touch stuff. Anyways, those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. And turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com/markets. For providing us with these prices each and every week. And on January 11th, gold is trading at $1,806.57 per ounce. That is $3 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $22.58 per ounce. That is $0.24 lower. Then last week, platinum is trading at $951.48 per ounce, that is $14 lower. And palladium is trading at $1,926.05 per ounce, that is $61 higher than last week, so a bit of a mixed bag on precious metals and turning to our industrial metals. Copper is trading at $4.36 per pound, that is 4 cents lower than last week. Aluminum is trading 5 cents higher at $1.32 per pound. Lead is unchanged at $1.06 per pound. Nickel is down 9 cents at $9.40 per pound. And tin is higher at $18.44 per pound, that is 46 cents higher. And it appears to be an all-time high in the last two years since we started recording these prices. So tin, off to the races. The previous highest number was $18.27 about two and a half months ago. Turning to cobalt, it is down a penny at $31.72 per pound. And zinc is down two cents at a $1.63 per pound. So zooming out... Again, a mixed bag on precious metals, but gold above $1,800 again. So it's hanging in there. I would say industrial metals continue to consolidate at ever higher prices. Like it's it's a bit of a creep higher in the uh, industrial metals. You know, nickel at $9.40, I mean, it's consolidating at its recent highs. So it seems that metal prices that Jeffrey Curry. To keep with the top of the, with our theme of the show here, it seems like he is, what he is saying is being borne out, at least if we look at this week's prices. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, my start of year interview with Stephen Stewart, who is a prominent member of the mining community in Canada. If you have never heard of him, I have seen him around for years at all the major events and again, he is chairman of Orfinders, which has six explorers, as well as perhaps more importantly, he is chairman of the Young Mining Professionals Scholarship Fund. So I just asked, I messaged Stephen and asked him if he wanted to just do a nice survey on what is going on to get the year going. Where are we at? And he graciously accepted at the last minute. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I sure did. And we will see you on the other side. Joining me today, I'm very happy to welcome Stephen Stewart chairman of the Or group and chairman of ymp or young mining professionals and steven it's great to have you here at the start of the year welcome to the program
2: thank you adrian a pleasure happy new Year to you and uh, the listeners um 2022 here we are interesting times i think it's going to be a great year despite
0: obvious appearances so far what do you think I'm, yeah, I'd say I'm a, I was going to say quietly optimistic, but I'm just optimistic. i'm I'm out loud optimistic on the uh, year ahead. I think Covid is about to be behind us. at least you know, i I think things are about to get a lot better. And even if we get crazy variants, I think we're just about to move on as a culture. I mean, historically, pandemics last about two years, and we're at two years. So, you know, whether it's Black Death in 1349 to 51 or whatever, and Spanish flu, and you go on and on through, it's about two years. So I think we're there. And that's sort of my benchmark. So I'm kind of optimistic that things are going to get a little bit more normal, which I think will be will lead to a funner uh, situation. Yeah,
2: well, look, I think the tide has turned both in severity and attitude, and I hope approach. And so uh, I, I can't wait to have a little bit more fun. It's been a it, It's been a great year in terms of 2021, in terms of corporate milestones that, you know, me and my group have been able to achieve, although it's been boring. You know, uh, we miss the PDAC. We miss going out there, meeting people face-to-face. Zoom has proven to be, you know, and the likes of it uh, has proven to be an effective tool, which I think will remain, but nothing will replace personal relationships face-to-face Collision space with people, with my team. I mean, even though we we work and I'm in the office, but nobody else is here, and we're in constant communication. But you miss out on bumping into people. It's those little nuances and and those short conversations that can evolve and grow into great ideas and and opportunities. So look, I can't wait to get back uh, to normal, so you get back to my friends and my family, and and get out there and and stretch my legs a little bit.
0: Yeah, I hear you indeed. So so help us out, help the listeners who haven't heard of you. I mean, you've been, I don't know if stalwart's the right word, but you've been a major prominent player in the mining community in Canada for years. I I saw you at the uh, uh, Canadian Mining Symposium years ago is where I met you, uh, that the Northern Miner put on in London. You've been a prominent figure. For those that don't know you, uh, just give us a quick uh, little C on what you're about, what you're doing.
2: Well, I think as you introduced, I'm the chairman of um, the ore group, which is my day job and pays the bills and and uh, what brings me into the office every day. And the ore group is a private group, but it it uh, is the controlling entity behind six public companies, uh, ore finders, Mustango, QC Copper, Baseload Energy, American Eagle, and our, our latest IPO, Metal Energy. And so we as a group take an interest in a commodity and or an individual and we we get out there and we buy projects that are sort of within that theme and we finance it move it forward the idea is to make a discovery something that's going to go into production that's that's you know to me that's my goal is is that's how i want to contribute to canada contribute to society is is be a part of putting something into production that doesn't mean i have to build it myself but i want to be a part uh, of something great that contributes something tangible. And along the way, uh, make money for us and our shareholders. And I mean, that's that's part and parcel of, of the business, but but it's, it's deeper than that. As I said, I wanna contribute. So that's what the org group is about. And we've got a diverse array of commodities we focus on obviously we like gold. That's how I sort of was attracted. So most people get attracted to this industry, but then obviously the electrification aspect uh, has has garnered an awful lot of worthy attention as of late. So that's copper, that's nickel, that's uranium. While not a lot of people appreciate uranium as a green metal, it's probably one of the greenest around. and then you know there's other commodities we like, but that's you know that's the the, the primary focus and and what I do on my on my spare time and and try and give back a little bit is is the young mining professionals, which has been, As much as I think we give back and we do, I think it's been just personally and professionally rewarding for me to be involved with this group, which has grown tremendously since the number of years I've been behind it. And uh, we're on all all six continents now in terms of chapters. And so it's just a gathering of of young, like-minded people who are interested in uh, promoting and advancing uh, themselves, but also the industry itself, because I think the industry does a terrible job historically speaking at branding itself you know we are we are too often viewed as as um, destroyers but you know in reality we are providers we are facilitators of our lifestyle we're facilitators of this this transition towards uh, you know a green energy revolution which in my mind has the opportunity to be bigger than the industrial revolution, you know, of of the mid 19th century here, we have the chance to go from, uh, you know, internal combustion engines called fossil fuels towards electrification. And it's so much bigger than Tesla and, and the cars, it's the electrification of everything, which is a a really a better mousetrap. There's no question about that. It's just a question of the economics and, and the economics of that transition is getting closer in a free market society and it's getting a lot closer given uh, the governments are really getting behind uh, mandating whether it's the the price of carbon or various other incentives for this type of cleaner greener more efficient energy production transportation and utilization coming to reality so that is a huge opportunity and something that the ore group is trying to take advantage of from a commercial perspective but also ymp i think ymp has that ability to be part of the grassroots movement, to rebrand the industry, attract young people, because in the past the industry, because of this false narrative, has repelled the young. People. So part of our mandate is to is to effectively rebrand it and 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 say, hey, look, we are the good guys. Without us, you're as the, the famous saying goes, you're without a miner, you're you're cold and in the dark, but it's it's greater than that. You know, you can be a part of of changing the economy, changing the the fossil fuel dynamic and being a part of of something really interesting globally. But, you know, really obviously being a Canadian, being based here, it's such a core and integral part of our history, our economy. I, I don't think it gets its due from all the way top, from the feds down to the municipal level. It's just, we're just sort of overlooked maybe because we've been there for so long. It's no longer sexy. It's just sort of, it's almost like breathing. It's just there, but without it, boy, you'll, you'll take note real quick.
0: You sure will. And there's so much to unpack there. Let's go with YMP first, just before we move on from YMP, Young Mining Professionals. So just tell us the latest news on that. Like, I I thought I saw a tweet that came out recently, maybe that they're looking for nominations. Like, where are we in YMP's calendar right now?
2: Yeah. So, okay. So let's, let's, uh, before I get into that, and that's certainly relevant, I'll, I'll note the the most important part to YMP, from my perspective, is what we just completed recently, which was about one hundred and thirty thousand dollars that we gave away in twenty twenty one to scholarships. So, so that part was done, and I think you guys—I know you guys—published a piece on the winners, so that's great. The Northern Miner uh, is is a part of that scholarship program and has been supportive of the group uh, since day one. So that, to me, that's the most important thing. We we raise money from our corporate sponsors, really blue chip uh, sponsors. Uh, you know, everybody from Agnico, et cetera, you know, uh, uh, have been supporting us. And, and so that money goes directly to students. 100% so every penny that we receive goes to students. You know, we cover all the administration fees out of pocket. So that's, that's something we're very proud of. And then, you noted every year we have the YMP awards, which is, is designed to recognize young people, a young female and a young male, uh, through the Peter Monk and the Ira Thomas awards, respectively. Uh, they're given out at the PDAC. Hopefully, the PDAC happens this year, but I still think we're doing everything remotely, nonetheless. And uh, yeah, so nominations are open. So if there's anybody 40 or under that knocked it out of the park this year, please go to youngminingprofessionals.com. There's a uh, nomination forms there, and uh, it's very easy process. Uh, it's open globally, so anyone from Africa to South America to Australia to Canada please apply. We've always had, I think we've always had Canadian winners. We're really looking for international winners, especially since we've got a, a really strong and growing presence in Australia, South America, and Europe now. So it's uh, it's exciting. I think nominations close up in the next week or two. So get, get out there and uh, let us know who you
0: think deserves to win. Okay. So people can visit the website and, and fill that out if they know someone, if they want to nominate someone. Now, you also mentioned that governments have started to get the message on resources a little bit and since you have you said six companies in canada could can you put some more sort of meat on that bone like how what's your experience like are you finding is this just a news story that you'll see and you go oh the governments doing more for the mining sector or just to really promote these critical strategic metals, or are you seeing kind of like real changes in your business where, oh, okay, this just got a little easier to do. Uh, uh, I'm getting real benefits that I can, are concrete.
2: Well, I think, you know, first comment I'd have is that the, the word government uh, has a lot of uh, meaning in it. It's, there's, there's just no one government that, whose decree can actually make the difference. So you got the feds, obviously you've got the provincials, you got the municipal, and then you've got, you know, the, call it the new governments, the, the indigenous and the first nations, which are, you know, effectively governments for um, resource uh, projects. Now, you can get your governmental permits, but that doesn't mean you have, uh, call it permission. So there's multiple levels of governments, and they don't all work in sync. Unfortunately, uh, in places uh, like China, that's different, and they they can move things along uh, quicker. So, you know, I just wanted to make that very important point. Now, I think the broader narrative is changing, particularly led by the what I think is beginning to be realized is the absolute necessity for call it electrical green metals, copper, nickel, uranium. You know, is a little more controversial unnecessarily so if people understood the facts. But but nonetheless, it does have that connotation and it, does, it will be slower through the chain. But I think uh, the governments, whether it's the Biden administration or the federal government here in Canada, understands that we need, let's just use copper as an example. Uh, we need more copper uh, very clearly to meet uh, these carbon reduction goals. Now, in order to get that copper, we need to dig more holes, which is, you know, been, oh, you know, this very this talking very simply, has is, is been the reason to think long and hard about granting 20, 30, 100 permits, you know, for any particular project. So again, I think the narrative is, is shifting out of necessity that, that has not yet translated into streamlining projects yet, because I don't think the reality, the true reality of the fact that we really do need these metals in order for those reduction in carbon to become uh, in effect has hit home yet. So I think we need to miss some call it COP targets or you know carbon targets and dates. And then there has to be some pushback. And then they're gonna do the math and say, well, why haven't we hit them? Well it's because we don't have the materials. If we're gonna turn off the natural gas plants and we're gonna shut down all the coal plants globally what is the alternative what is it being replaced with and, and and there's really no good answer i mean we know what it is. we we can surmise well it has to be you know this type of energy production nuclear energy production but the the pipeline to get there takes a long time so so i don't think that they either they've they don't know the math or they're just sort of waiting for some harsh realities behind some sort of rosy projections to sort of come home to roost so you know to answer your question unfortunately no, it's it hasn't become any easier to permit or move things forward. In fact, in many ways, it's become harder, uh, hmm. which is is counterintuitive if the powers that be are really serious about eliminating fossil fuels from the equation.
0: you know, it's so interesting. I was just had this i was as I was going to sleep last night, I was thinking, you know, as you probably know, natural gas has gone up by four or five x in uh, Europe here. And it was cold in my in my apartment, so I had to turn on the heat a bit. And I thought to myself, here here I am in Germany, you know, nuclear power should be their pride and joy, you know. If anybody, if any country in the world should be doing nuclear, it's kind of like Germany, you know. And and they're not, and the poor are shivering, and and they're told, oh, sorry, Russia is messing with your power bill. And I just thought, you know, I, I just sort of shook my head. At, but but anyway, so is is there anything that you think then, like if there's a policymaker that's listening to this program, say in Canada, like what could Canada be doing from your perspective as someone that's operating a six companies or helping operate? Is there anything that you tell them, like hey, you should do this?
2: Streamline the permitting process is one thing. You know, there there are too many permits and too many governmental and quasi governmental organizations involved in the process. And sometimes the right hand's not talking to the left hand. So I mean that that is a very complicated thing to do. And so I'm I'm understanding and sympathetic to that. So you can't just snap your fingers and expect it to be so. But that needs to be, you know, look, we need to set ambitious goals and, and have really one or you know, one governmental organization responsible for permitting, you know, the whole <laughs> way through. I mean, that would be groundbreaking. I think we need to resolve the indigenous and first nations issue once and for all again an ambitious plan uh, because there are uh, so many first nations communities so it's it's difficult to gain consensus but nonetheless we have to set broad and ambitious uh, targets you know we need to swing for the fences in terms of a perfect world and maybe we don't get there but I think there's a, there's certainly an improvement so uh, you know, again, we need to understand that the First Nations are a part of the equation and, and that they deserve a, a piece of the pie. I think they, they they do, but we definitely need to get everybody on the same page in terms of moving things forward. I, I, I will always reference here in Ontario, we've got the Ring of Fire, which has been in the news lately, of course, with Noron being uh, bought out or soon to be bought out by an Australian group, uh, Andrew Forrest and his Wailu. I mean, that's been a highly publicized discovery. I think it was made probably 20 years ago through much fanfare. Uh, it's got a huge opportunity up there. And it's not just about any one deposit, that nickel deposit. Really, it's, it's a nice nickel deposit. But to me, the excitement is about opening up the north. Relative to Quebec, if you look, Quebec has opened up the north. It did so uh, through many different ways, but primarily so in the hydroelectrical power uh, system, and uh, the dam system they built in the 70s, just opened up the north. Whereas Ontario, you go sort of north of Thunder Bay, there's no infrastructure. And so what does that mean? That means it's it's really expensive to explore and to extract uh, just the same. And so the discovery was made up there in the ring of fire. There was the hope that they'd be able to use that as the leverage to sort of build the infrastructure. That opens up the ability. So instead of $500 a meter to drill, you get it, you get the cost down to $100 a meter and so on and so forth. So it just incents more exploration. And then there's the, you know, the First Nations issue again. I think a lot of the First Nations up there are frustrated because they don't have access to power, clean water, infrastructure. So they're they're very isolated. Sometimes they want to be isolated, but a lot of times they don't. And so I think the the government, with the assistance of the mining industry, needs to be the the, the forerunner of building that infrastructure to connect these communities through internet. I mean you know all these sort of things that can help these communities grow and lower their costs to, of of living, and that is a process. and And I don't think it. I think it's impossible to pre- please everybody. So at some point, there's going to have to be a, a, call it a coalition of the willing, you know, and just drive this thing forward and build that road. You know, you know, build that road, build that rail, get the power up there, get them internet, build that mine, and just like the prosperity that will fall out of that is just you know incalculable, really. And then there will be more discoveries made and more wealth. And so I, I think that if we can just cut out a lot of the noise and some of the naysayers that may not have legitimate or bona fide claims, nobody will benefit more than the development of the North and the First Nations. And and, and some of that, this goes back again to the the poor branding of, of of the industry has done in itself, historically speaking, and it's getting better. That if, if there's a mine built up there, all of a sudden the ecosystem, you know, is broken. Well, that's totally not the case now. I mean, there's no way that you can build a mine without paying very close attention to environmental and ecological systems these days. It's not the you know the days of the you know Sudbury in 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 the 20th century where it was just you know you dump the sludge on the side of the street. That's that's not how things are done. And so you know that message needs to be communicated. Uh, nonetheless, look, accidents happen. Whether no matter what industry you're in, there. so. It'll never be perfect. It'll never be a hundred percent clean. There are trade-offs in life. It's just it, it, inevitable, but it's about a cost benefit. And so I think the the cost benefit for mining is phenomenal. That's how Canada was built. Ultimately, whether it's you know the town of Cobalt or or later on in Kirkland Lake and Valdor and Timmins, all those communities you know really wouldn't exist like, certainly not like they do now if it wasn't for mining, the discovery of gold. And silver and other commodities that that uh, ultimately form the backbone of Canada. You know that, alongside the, the fur industry. Um, so, so there's a lot of history to to mining in Canada. There's a ton of benefit, and I think if we were to cut out a lot of the the misinformation and those that purvey the misinformation, there's a huge opportunity that we're missing here. What's the alternative here? I mean, tech is great industry that Canada's in. but The manufacturing industry. You know, w- it appears we've lost that. You know. So where can we replace those high paying jobs for the masses? I think, you know, the natural resource and extractive industry in this country, which is really untapped when you look at it, I mean, you know, look at, look at, you know, the land we have versus the people. There's a huge opportunity that we just haven't even scratched the surface of. So to me, that's the, that's the best opportunity. I am clearly biased in my views because that's what I know best. But there's no question in my mind that if Canada really got serious and its provinces and, you know, its communities really got serious about the opportunity that mining can present, uh, you know, that just might be the answer to a lot of our problems.
0: I couldn't agree more. I think that's really well said. And in terms of the branding, I mean, this is something that's, again, been coming up for ever since I've been involved uh, 10 years ago in this industry when I started at the Northern Miner. And you know who I think has done a really good job that I think really the industry can look to is Cameco. And in a sense, the uranium industry in general, which has kind of rebranded itself as a environmental solution from the complete opposite perception that existed, say, in the 90s. when I remember I was in, grew up in Saskatchewan and Saskatoon, and they didn't want to build you know, anything to do with nuclear. And so I think the mining industry would be, in in, in my opinion, I, I think they should follow that template, which is, if, if you want to help save the earth, so to speak, go into mine. Uh, you know, this sort of idea. Get those green metals and this kind of rebranding. What do you think about that? I
2: completely agree. I mean, you know, again, as I said before, we are not destroyers. We are providers. And we're facilitators. And uh, I think, you know, to reference Cameco and uranium, I think, you know, that's a a shining example of misinformation and something being uh, wrongfully misunderstood. I mean, uranium, uh, people think, um, you know, Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark and people melting, you know, that sort of stuff. That is totally false. If we want to hit our green targets, uranium is a part of that equation, Uh, you know. Sophisticated people can do the math, and there there's no other equation in it. Uh, uranium is is going to be an important part of the energy solution going forward. And you're right, you referenced Germany before. It is mind-baffling. Germany probably has the most counterintuitive policies around uranium. You think you know Germans high, highly logical, disciplined people, historically speaking, and 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 engineers, and and they're cutting out coal, and they're they're doing all sorts of uh, very questionable. Uh, Processes, which is is I I think you know could really come back and bite them in the butt. But nonetheless, I digress. Uranium is misunderstood. It, you do not treat uranium itself lightheartedly, but if done correctly, it's completely safe. And if you look at the deaths, let's talk about the aggregate deaths from power generation. The, the, obviously, the biggest disaster. You're not even supposed to speak the name because it conjures up negative connotations. But uh, but but in the the Ukraine, Chernobyl. I mean, that was the the biggest disaster by a landslide. But but if you juxtapose that next to the effluent and the the deaths that happen from coal or gas or any fossil fuel, it's just minuscule. I don't have the the figures offhand, but it's it's literally minuscule. So if people juxtapose what is really safe versus what are you you know what are you afraid of because of misinformation, they will they will click quickly see that, that uranium is is safe relative to the alternatives. and it absolutely has to be a part of the equation. And, and that's just sort of a, a proxy for the state of mining. M- mining itself is sort of viewed in a sense like uranium, dangerous and dirty for no good reason and and really necessary if you want to live your life. If you want to go back and and sort of live in the caves and eat plants, fine, you know, not to be sort of flippant about it. but you know the way we live our lives uh, with iPhones and and airplanes, You know, there's no escaping mining. And it's only going to get more important as we transition towards electrification. And as the population grows, let's not forget about that. Not just the population in aggregate forms, but as we pull ourselves out of poverty. I'm just talking about the the global Global. population. We are becoming wealthier as a species. And as you become wealthier, you require more things that have metals in it. And we're becoming wealthier very rapidly, despite what some people may read or see in the media, poverty still exists, but, you know, uh, on a percentage basis and an aggregate basis, uh, we've never been wealthier. And, and the term and poverty is sort of a, a relative term. Uh, poverty now versus poverty 100 years ago, are very different things. So all of that means more, more metal uh, on a percentage basis for more people. So mining has is, is, is never been more important than it is today. And I think uh, that theme will hold true every day, every year, uh, so on and so forth going forward.
0: Okay, excellent. So I just have a couple of more areas I want to touch on. And this idea, so you're involved with six exploration, I think they're exploration companies is a fair way to characterize them, correct me if I'm wrong. No, that's correct. So is there a protocol for ESG at that level? Or is it still kind of being hashed out?
2: Well, again, this sort of dovetails with how the industry has not done a great job of branding itself. I think by and large, uh, lately in the last, call it five to 10 years, a lot of what is now called ESG, the industry has been doing, but it just hasn't advertised, it hasn't packaged it up in a nice bow and put it on its website, so on and so forth. Mind you, uh, we're getting better and we're learning what you know ESG really is. And I think ESG, to me, is just sort of o- always glossed over as, one thing, but in fact, it's three things, right? It's environmental, it's sustainability, and it's governance, which are three distinct and separate things. I think most people just sort of assume it's uh, the first two and people sort of gloss over the governance part. But nonetheless, you know, the mining industry, by its very nature, has been paying very close attention to the environment for a long time. Um, but we're just doing a better job of advertising so that you know it appeals to a broader group and it just sort of touched out those softer points. Now, from a from an exploration let's let's talk about reality like from a mining company yeah i think you know you the impact on the environment is far more substantial because you're moving a lot of dirt you're burning a lot of oil or diesel or whatever it is if you're not on the grid etc if you're an exploration company the the impact is quite i don't say negligible but it's certainly minimal you are burning fuel while the drills are spinning uh, no question about that you know but that's you know on par with running a truck You know, so not too different. So it really is quite negligible. Uh, I do think a lot of uh, junior mining companies are taking a a lot of uh, care in in sort of projecting where they're going to be if they were a mining company. So some companies are saying they're going to be carbon neutral. And I guess you can be carbon neutral by purchasing offsets and, and, and stuff like that. But so to answer your question, is there a protocol? No, there isn't any fixed protocol. It's up to the individual companies to design their own programs, I think there were some first movers, which is great. I think everybody's trying to catch up so they can sort of be a part of the crowd. From the exploration side, again, I think there's, um, you know, from an environmental standpoint, our impact is fairly minimal. I think we can do, you know, and and the same would hold true for sustainability. There's not too much that we're uh, wasting. Uh, From a governance standpoint, I think that's probably somewhere where the junior mining industry could Make the most impactful, but that's not an environmental thing. That's really just about being responsible to shareholders and providing transparency. That's one third of of the ESG that really nobody considers as part of ESG. So I think you know our industry is is known for not always having the, the best uh, governance and transparency. So I think that's something that uh, we could have a totally separate podcast on. But look, you know, from the mining perspective, I think they focus on the first two, the environmental and sustainability factors more so because they just they just have more of an impact. They're the ones digging the holes. Uh, A lot of them now are buying carbon offsets. So I think that's a trend you're going to see in the industry. A lot of mining people are getting involved in the carbon offset business because they see it as a as a nascent industry, which it is. uh, And it's, it's likely not going away. And and, and a lot of folks like me are starting up, you know, carbon streaming businesses and and call it green royalty businesses. They're they're taking established business models that were born or certainly well utilized out of our industry, and they're applying them to this, again, nascent industry. Is there a business model there? Yes, I think there is. I think there's also a lot of challenges with this carbon offset business as well, because uh, I think they're going to come back kind of like the 43-1. What is a carbon offset? Uh, I think that's going to be a real uh, question that some people will have a hard time uh, answering. How do they audit it empirically? I think we got to be really careful about greenwashing. I mean, so like that's the the dark side of ESG is is a lot of it's just words on paper that don't have a whole lot of meaning. You know, so I think in time that'll sort of come home to roost. But nonetheless, look, it's a a positive message. I I really think it is. As long as it doesn't get out of control to the point where it's self-defeating, and people don't get carried away with some of this greenwashing stuff, I think it's a positive trend. And I think it's something that that is an absolutely critical part of the industry rebranding itself because that narrative is so powerful in this day and age.
0: It's very interesting to see how the ESG theme has evolved into something that at the start, it was kind of seen as new. Is this a good idea almost, or is this not a good idea? What should we think of this to now it's, kind of broadly accepted. And I, I agree with you. I think it's it's a very good thing and I think it's great. Shifting gears a little bit, just on the metals that you find interesting. I mean, Jeffrey Curry came out again from Goldman Sachs. I mean, it seems every year he comes out and, and again, he's seen 10 years of big moves in commodities. Um, we have this electrification narrative that you touched on earlier. So, just as we go, like, are, are there any metals in particular that you're kind of excited about? Situations and like rare earth supply lines? What's kind of interesting you in the whole metals area?
2: I typically stay away from the exotics. So, things I don't understand so well, like, uh, you know, we do have exposure to rare earths. I do, uh, clearly, rare earths have a, a massive part in the electrifications because of their magnetic properties. And then, certainly, that works very well in uh, electric uh, motors and whatnot. Uh, but I'm not heavily exposed to it, and we don't haven't built a company around it. Where I think the real uh, opportunity is in in the, in the major uh, deep markets like copper, like nickel and like uranium. If we're talking about the green aspect, I think that those are sort of the the, the holy Trinity, if you will, of the, of the green uh, revolution, and you could probably slip lithium into that as well, although I, I know less about lithium, but it's certainly certainly an important commodity or ingredient in the equation. And then you know gold. Uh, let's let's go back to gold. I think it's it's uh, it's been overlooked, uh,
1: mm. but
2: it it shouldn't be. It it's it's really had a tough year from an equity standpoint. But I, I think look, there's a lot going on in the, in the world, both socially, politically, and economically, that I just don't understand. And uh, I think it's just sort of you know in a bit of a bizarro world right now. And I think it could get a bizarro world, two x or maybe even three x before we see some sort of return to what you know. Maybe what I consider to be normalcy, and I don't think that gold, you know, necessarily is going to you know run through uh, the roof anytime soon because I think a couple things need to occur before really gold has a run, and I I think we need to uh, stop printing and giving away all this money, you know, call it this free money out of COVID. So until that stops and the consequences of said policy uh, are felt, um, I don't think gold is going to have a move until then. But when those consequences are felt and it's inevitable, Adrian, it's coming. I just don't know when. That's when gold is going to make its move, and I think it's going to be an aggressive move, and it's to be a sustained move. So I, I think that gold is a really great place to be, uh, and I'm talking about the physical commodity. But then it's equities. Let's talk about the mining companies that are exposed to this metal. Are Are at all-time lows in terms of price-to-book, price-to-nav, whatever you want to call it. They're cheap, and at $1,800 gold, they're printing free cash flow like crazy. The good ones are. So when you look at their, call it valuation. I'm talking about valuation in terms of how people used to value businesses, value investors, relative to this growth. When people, you know, growth business, and that's everything from tech to Bitcoin to uh, ETFs or EFTs, whatever those, you know, digital assets are called. You know when you look at at how those are being valued relative to a cash-flowing company uh, that produces gold like a Barrick or or a Newmont, uh, they are cheap. So if you want to uh, buy a couple of those, and don't take my investment advice, but you know I, I think that there's a there's a huge rebound opportunity in the precious metal equities, and then that will be followed by the juniors who are even cheaper, who've just been beaten down. Our companies exposed to gold are no exception, you know, so it's it's been a tough time in the gold equity space. But I think it's a really, if you can afford to be a little bit patient, I think that's where the next move is coming. I always like to look where, you know, I mean, look, you have to be a contrarian. I'm just not smart enough to pick, you know, companies individually. So, you know, you, you really have to sort of pick a theme and you have to sort of go against the grain, not just for the sake of it. But, you know, if lithium has had a, a major run, don't chase lithium. You missed it. You got to take a position. Well, what's next? What's hated? Okay, what's currently hated, but is going to come back? My message is that's gold. You know, so I think like the, yeah. the electrification or electric metal suite of, of metals have had a run and they'll continue to run. OK, and I think that, you know, that story is not over, though there'll be volatility. But gold is sort of, uh, you know, the economist, you know, published something that, you know, they should timestamp saying, you know, gold is they didn't say gold is dead. But they basically say gold ain't what it used to be. You know, I think it's it's stuff like that, that I just sort of look, maybe it's time to
0: buy some more gold. I couldn't agree more. I think the most bullish thing that gold has going for it is how overlooked it is, as, as you're saying, like that, that excites me as an investor, when I see stuff that is absolutely hated and cheap, as you're saying, don't chase the lithium stocks that have gone up 10x, but uh, see what's cheap. And you might do better again, not financial advice from here either. Great. Stephen Stewart. Thank you for joining us on this kind of beginning of year in spirit, at least, podcast. Stephen Stewart is chairman of the Org Group and of YMP, Young Mining Professionals. Stephen, where can people find you on Twitter?
2: You know what, Adrian? I, uh, at the, uh, I think it's orrgroup.com, I, I've retired my personal account from Twitter beginning this year because I just wanted to, uh, I wasn't finding a lot of truth on Twitter. You know what? So I decided to cut out some of the noise. I think there's great value in, in being involved in, in Twitter from a corporate business, but I, I transitioned away from it. But you can find me at sstewart.orggroup.ca anytime. Uh, I look forward to hearing from some of the listeners.
0: Okay, excellent. Well, thank you once again. And we will talk to you soon, maybe around PDAC when the YMP awards are announced. I would look forward to it. Thank you for your time, Adrian. Have it our a long discussion on what is happening in Canada with some good advice for policymakers there. I think that was my favorite part, but there were many interesting areas to chew on. Thank you once again to our sponsor, Questex Golden Copper Exploration. You can find them at Questex.ca. And thank you to Joseph Mullen for the interview. And also thank you again to Stephen Stewart. Much to look forward to in the coming year. I hope you're having a wonderful start to the year. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Directory. Leave a comment. Send it to your friends. And until next week, take care.